From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We know race and income are related to health, and it's no different with COVID-19. Today, how the state is trying to address inequities in the pandemic, even as its budget is in free fall. Then the politics team at Purplish considers the challenge of balancing that budget. Everything has to be considered given the situation the state is in right now. Later, Denver pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber, host of the new podcast, The Confessional, in which she and her guests lay bare their sins. The first episode features a woman who grew up in the controversial Westboro Baptist Church. We started carrying signs that said, pray for more dead soldiers and pray for more dead kids, which seems insane to say. How other people's compassion helped her see the pain she was causing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The color of your skin, where you live, and your income all broadly impact your chances of getting COVID-19. As we've reported, the pandemic disproportionately impacts Colorado's African-American and Latino communities. With that in mind, Governor Jared Polis announced in April the formation of a COVID-19 health equity response team. Denise Maez is a member of that team. She's also public policy director at the ACLU of Colorado. Denise, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. As you've reviewed the data with the team, what inequities stand out most to you? Or or maybe there's a personal story you've heard that stands out. Well, I think it's more just what your opening comments um, mention is that the fact of the matter is, is that Although the virus itself is not racist, it certainly reveals a long history and um, systemic forms of racism. And I, I just think the data speaks for itself. The fact that communities of color are disproportionately impacted by this virus on many fronts is really what stands out to me. And I don't think it's something that anyone necessarily saw coming, uh, but it's pretty stark. How is it that they wouldn't have seen it coming when you also say that there's a long history and that this is systemic? Uh, I think there'd probably be people who bristle at that and think, um, if you knew the history, you'd you'd know that past is prologue. Well, no, that's exactly right. And and I think that's why there was a, a clamor of folks from the very beginning that were asking the governor to establish um, something like this equity task force. Um, it, you know, the first confirmed case of the virus was on March 5th, and it really was not until five weeks later on April 13th when this task force was set up. And so um, I, I think we all we all knew that the data would show the disproportionate impact, and, and in fact, it is revealing what we did indeed know. All right. The COVID-19 health equity response team has met three times, as I understand it, most recently on Thursday afternoon. What priorities has the team developed in the discussions? Because, you know, I imagine you have to say, here are our priorities. Here's what we are really going to target. Yeah. And I think it's still a work in progress. Uh, We still have a few more meetings to go through. But I think what uh, the team sort of talked about a little bit yesterday are are things about um, what might be legislative priorities, given that the legislature will be starting up in just a couple of weeks. And so there was discussion about legislation around paid sick leave, maybe bolstering uh, workers' comp, um, dealing with whistleblower protections for certain employees, 
And then there is also discussion about how we move forward, how we can make testing more available and perhaps uh, have it equitably distributed so that uh, communities that are most impacted or most likely to be impacted have easier access to testing and certainly the health care that may be needed afterwards. Why whistleblower protection? Who, who is it that you'd be seeking to protect? Um, it, it appears to me, and this is not something that I am directly familiar with, but there seem to be some folks around the table um, that, uh, that incidentally had been asking for a, a hotline where employees could report to the state certain, um, what, how, what I would want to say, some certain abuses by employers. For example, you're not allowed to wear a mask or uh, you have to work. Uh, side by side, um, even though the the state the the order around the state suggests that that not happen, and so I think the idea is to have some protections um, in case employees do report some employer abuses. Denise Maez, um, as you reflected, a lot of these health disparities are very old; they're systemic. And wasn't the right time to address them when the state's economy was booming? I mean, here you have the budget in free fall, and it seems like this is the time the state is least equipped to deal with these issues. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's sort of the, uh, I don't know, the disappointment or sort of the depressing part of all of this, right, is um, these are, we have invested very little in, in these communities over a, such a long period of time. And it seems like we never think about the necessary investment in these communities until there is something dire right in front of us. And, and that, and you're exactly right that that's the, the, the worst time or, or and maybe not the worst time, but it's certainly the time when you have the least, uh, perhaps political will and the least dollars to invest. So it's a it's a hole we have to dig out of. But um, but by golly, we do have to dig out of it somehow. You mentioned paid sick leave. You mentioned uh, beefing up workers' comp. Those might strike people as economic, uh, you know, financial mm-hmm. solutions. Help us understand mm-hmm. why they speak to health equity. Well, I think. Um, I think a lot of folks need to think about health a little bit more broadly. It's really not just a particular physical ailment at a particular time. Um, I think things like paid sick leave will give opportunities for individuals to stay home and get healthy um, and be and have a financial cushion, so to speak, in order to do so. And without these sort of financial um, cushions or uh, supports or net or nets, financial nets, people will become sicker. Uh, they'll go to work, they'll go to work ill and they'll become more ill. Um, so I think a lot of these things are intending to address, to address a, a healthy community that means a lot more than just physical ailments. I understand, Denise Maez, of the COVID-19 health equity response team, that there is some talk um about rent relief as a way to help, especially communities of color, fight the economic impacts of the disease, um, that you hope that perhaps you'd have some backing from Governor Polis on that. Where, where do you see his position? Um, yes, I mean, that is one of the issues that we that has come up a lot in the task force is, is what rent relief. Um, just for a little bit of background, uh, probably a couple of years ago, uh, the ACLU did a report on 
um, communities that are the most susceptible to evictions. And one of the things that they found out in the state of Colorado is African-American and African-American women in particular are uh, probably the community hit hardest by evictions more so than any other community. And so I think that's a serious problem. Now, the governor does have, in effect, uh, an eviction uh, moratorium, if you will, that he's done by executive order. But that doesn't mean that the dollars of, um, of back rent, potentially late fees, et cetera, are not still racking up for communities. And so there is a little bit of a clamor for some sort of rent relief, whether it be a rent relief fund or a moratorium on uh, rent payments. And um, there seems to be some reluctance on the part of the governor's office to go that far. Uh, I think we know a little bit about our governor as being a little bit more of a of a libertarian in those sense, doesn't want to interfere with contracts in business relationships, or he's a real believer in local control. And so uh, we're not necessarily seeing the movement that we would like to see um, at the governor's office just yet. In just the last few moments, I know that early on, this uh, equity team came under some criticism for not having uh, a reflection of the LGBTQ community and the elder community. Uh, do you agree with those criticisms? Um, I, I do to some extent. I, I certainly don't want to suggest that folks around the table are not uh, keeping those communities in mind, even though someone directly representing those communities is not at the table. But sure, um, I think there are unique um, experiences, unique needs, uh, unique impacts on those communities that you you would think that they would have been represented around the table. Um, But there is certainly discussion of both of those communities around the table. So um, I don't want folks to think that they're being ignored. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for your interest in the topic. Much appreciated. Denise Maez, member of the Colorado COVID-19 Health Equity Response Team. Governor Polis created it to try to improve health outcomes in the state's minority communities. When we come back, more on the grim reality of the state budget. We'll dip into the latest episode of Purplish, our politics podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When you support Colorado Public Radio... You're helping to keep Coloradans informed and connected through trusted nonprofit news coverage and essential, inspiring music. And when you give now, you will help feed a family in Colorado thanks to a partnership with the Colorado Health Foundation and food banks across the state. Show your support for our community with a donation now. Give it CPR.org and thanks. Lawmakers have to return to the state capitol soon to address a $3 billion budget shortfall. Their other challenge is to make sure COVID-19 doesn't return to the capitol with them. The Joint Budget Committee has already been meeting. The rest of the legislature is scheduled to reconvene May 26th to finish the session and pass a budget. CPR's purplish team, public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland, break down what's to come. Two months after Colorado's first confirmed case of COVID-19, the state government's finances are rapidly spiraling into what one person called worst nightmare territory. 
Tax collections are delayed, personal incomes plummeting, which means the major parts of state revenue are just going downhill very rapidly, and an economic recovery isn't yet on the horizon. One of the biggest immediate impacts is on the general fund. That's the discretionary money, the money that state lawmakers and the governor get to make decisions about when they make the budget every year. Because of the drop in the state's financial activity, both for businesses and for people, that's just evaporating. They're looking at needing to cut about $3.3 billion of existing spending as they try to come up with the, the spending plan for next year. That's about a quarter of the existing general fund revenues. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. For perspective, you know, during the last recession, general fund revenues declined by about $1 billion from one fiscal year to the next. So they're looking at a much sharper cut. And I think another big difference from the 2008 recession is how rapidly everything happened. Before coronavirus, Colorado's unemployment rate was 2.5%. There was extra money to spend in the state budget. People were debating about sending refunds back to taxpayers. And so, like so many things with coronavirus, no one saw this coming. Yeah, and they're having to step between these two very different realities very quickly because the next budget year, the fiscal year, begins on July 1st. The budget was supposed to be done. The legislature was supposed to be adjourned, right, by now. And now they're figuring out in a matter of weeks how to completely rewrite the book. So lawmakers on the Budget Committee have already started that process. Mm -hmm. They've made relatively easy cuts, grant programs, new spending. That's only saved about $700 million, though. So they've still got a long way to go. The conversation, yeah, they were relatively easy compared to what's to come, but even so, they were still very difficult because this is a Democratic-controlled legislature looking at all of its new laws that it's so proud of passing and just throwing them out the window. Next, mm -hmm. they start really slicing into existing spending. They'll be talking about schools funding. They'll be talking about basic services. You know, it really feels like it could be an erosion of what state government does, at least to me. Do you get the sense that it's taking an emotional toll on these budget committee members who are the first lawmakers to really be diving into what all these cuts mean? Yeah, yeah. Every time we've talked to them, you know, and I, I don't think it's just political theater to say that it's extremely difficult to to go and slice through not just things that you thought were important, but services that you know that people depend on. One thing that strikes me is even minor cuts, when you look at the whole budget, could have long-term consequences. So one thing the Budget Committee was grappling with was how much money to put into the state tourism office, which markets Colorado, a big part of our economy, especially in the mountain resort areas, is based on tourism. Mm. And some lawmakers felt like it was very defeatist to cut this funding because it could impact our future recovery as a state. Others questioned whether that was the best use of funding, given that the travel industry is kind of decimated right now and we don't know when that will come back. That really speaks to the whole uncertainty of the situation. You know, you're trying to deal with this massive loss of money and you don't know when the crisis even ends. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, even while they debate these relatively small items, they're also having to look at huge, huge cuts. And one of the things that's now on the table is the idea of full-day kindergarten, that was something that the legislature and only passed last year. It's been a huge priority of Governor Polis finally 
providing enough money for for schools to actually let most kids attend full day kindergarten free of charge, right? And now the JBC is saying that it's at least something that they have to consider rolling back. Yeah, that will be shocking if that ended up happening since it was something the governor campaigned on and really his top priority during his first session as governor. Yeah, it's hard to tell just how how real of a possibility that is. I don't know if the Joint Budget Committee is discussing it as a way to signal how serious things are. What do you think it shows that it's even in the discussion? I think it just highlights how everything has to be considered given the situation the state is in right now. Even some of the top, top priorities for Democrats who ran on these issues. Some people have pointed to this whole crisis as maybe it'll be a boon for progressive policies. Perhaps the federal government will finally approve some kind of universal basic income, etc. But this lack of funding at the state level is just causing them to reconsider all the progressive policies they've already instituted. Well, one big question mark in the budget process really is the federal government and how much money they're going to provide to help the states, especially Colorado for our case, deal with this gigantic shortfall. Representative Denea Eskar is the chair of the Joint Budget Committee, and she argued that the feds are supposed to be the firewall, the real protection for emergencies like this. I think we absolutely should be looking at how this pandemic has not only impacted people's lives from a public health aspect, but also how it's impacted our economy. And it's been an economy impact across the entire U.S., and the states are feeling the brunt of this. So yeah, I I do believe that the federal government should be stepping up and figuring out ways to make sure that we are able to help the most people in the best possible way. And Republicans in Washington, D.C., and and even some locally are fighting against that concept. They say, no, they don't want to bail out states. It rewards states, especially some Democratic states, for overspending before the coronavirus and growing government programs. It's a fight happening at the national level, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. So state lawmakers have to come back to sort out the budget, but they're grappling with the logistics of how to return safely to the state capitol to meet in person. Yeah, these seem to be disagreements over the kind of the basic safety procedures that they're going to use. Normally, the capitol is totally packed with people when lawmakers are in session, tourists, lobbyists, everything. What's that going to look like this time? Well, I don't think we'll have as many people, but the plan is to allow the public in the building. And one idea is to close parts of the Capitol where these large groups of people normally gather. So there's these spaces right outside the House and Senate chamber that are just shoulder to shoulder with lobbyists and tour groups and everything. So those sections may be closed off entirely. And then the request would be for people to maintain a social distance. The request. Yeah. So the capital is within the city of Denver. It's right in the middle of downtown Denver. The city has fairly strong safety requirements for businesses and other spaces that are reopening. Mayor Michael Hancock has ordered people to wear masks when they're inside these kind of spaces. Workplaces can only open at half their normal capacity. The capital is arguably a workplace in Denver. Will the city requirements for masks and stuff carry over to the state capitol? It doesn't appear so right now. It's, it's not finalized, but we're not seeing requirements. Masks would not be mandated for lawmakers or the public. They would be strongly encouraged. They do want people entering the building to have their temperature taken. And if it's higher than 100.4, 
people would be strongly urged to not come into the building, but they would still be allowed to come in if they wanted to. So I haven't been sitting in on these meetings where they're discussing this, but you have. When they're debating how to change procedures, stuff like masks, are people all over the place or is this kind of a partisan issue so far? I mean, I think everyone understands that when they come back to the Capitol, it's not going to be the same as things were before. But there's definitely some partisan divisions developing. Democrats generally want things like masks to be required, and many of them support actually changing how the legislature itself works more dramatically. And that could mean letting some lawmakers work remotely and vote remotely and requiring some of them to sit up in the balconies above the House chamber to spread out the lawmakers more. But Republicans aren't on board with the balcony request. I mean, if someone wants to sit up there voluntarily, they're okay with it, but not requiring certain members to go up on the balcony. There's no desks there. You know, they feel it's the desk is an important part of, you know, the legislative work on the chamber floor. And a lot of Republicans are concerned that working remotely, you know, voting on bills and legislation would be unconstitutional and not allow for the public to fully participate. They want the precautions in the building to be voluntary, not mandatory. It's you know, this idea of taking individual responsibility. So it's exactly like the argument that's playing out outside of the Capitol And it poses some tricky questions, it seems like, for some of the lawmakers who are worried that they could be vulnerable or that their family could be vulnerable. We have older lawmakers, people who have had cancer, they're immunocompromised, they have infants at home. This could be a really tough choice. Definitely. And I've talked to a couple of lawmakers, at least one who does not plan to come back to the Capitol in person and said, it's I want to participate and represent my district, but I don't want to put my life at risk or maybe a family member. And so with social distancing and some of the requirements potentially being optional and difficult to enforce, it it makes that decision even harder. But if lawmakers are absent and are not able to vote on legislation remotely, that could definitely impact the dynamic in the building and what the differential is between the Democratic and Republican-held seats, and especially in the Senate, where Democrats have a very narrow majority. Wow, what a strange kind of math they're having to do. Our final segment of this podcast episode, wait, what? So I had a lot of wait-what moments as I was watching Governor Jared Polis meet with President Donald Trump Mm. at the White House. That was uh, the the first time Polis had met with him for a one-on-one meeting as governor in D.C. And it was interesting to hear the governor talk about, first off, his flight to D.C. It was a flight he used to do weekly during his decade in Congress. Um, Typically, there's a direct flight from Denver to D.C. He said there was not, so he went through Dallas. And Polis said his family didn't want him to go to the White House because they were nervous for him to have to fly. He he said there were more people on the flight than he would have liked, even though everyone had masks. And it was really incredibly tense. Mm. He basically said he didn't really like flying in the first place and just made it, you know, kind of that much less pleasant. Um, And then he and Trump, it was it was just kind of funny to see their interactions and Trump's praising Polis's haircut that he finally got and. The whole thing was interesting <laughs> to watch. The <laughs> yes. We've worked very well together with 
uh, with Republican governors and with Democrat governors. And when are you thinking of opening? Uh, explain what you're going to yeah, do. Yeah, we're, we're we're most 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 businesses are open in Colorado. Pretty much everything except for those social businesses like right. bars and nightclubs. Uh, a few places have restaurants open. We're working on the rest soon, but offices, manufacturing, right. salons, pretty much all people are back at in a, in a in a safer way, right? It's not the same way it was. Like uh, if you go, I got my hair cut the other day. Looks good. Thank you. You should have seen it before. I like I was it was crazy. <laughs> that's strange. That's like that's like hearing Governor Polis on the Trump show. I guess they they were able to make nice for a little while. Although Trump did I saw call out uh, vote by mail systems as as allegedly insecure and unsafe. So not all friendly. That is Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. It's hosted by public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, we want to hear from you. Next week, we present Parenting in a Pandemic. And as we get this special ready, We'd like you to share the most memorable parenting moment you've had in the last couple of months, good or bad. Leave us a voicemail. Here's the number 303-871-9191, extension 480. I'll give that to you again, 303-871-9191. That's CPR's main number, and the extension is 480. Still to come, we step into the confessional. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's photojournalists have received awards for the work they do every day, giving visual context for vital stories. Hart Van Denberg from CPR News. In some ways, you have the luxury to think about how to cover a story in a thoughtful way. And Kevin Beatty from Denverite. My job is to make art for news, and it's awesome. <laughs> Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. It's like a car wash for our shame and secrets. That's how Denver pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber describes her new podcast, The Confessional, in which she and her guests dance out the skeletons in their closets and then ask for grace. Ugly confessions from beautiful people. And at the end of every episode, an original blessing, just for them, written by me. Boltz-Weber started the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, then found her calling in writing books, including Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, and Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. And Nadia, welcome back to our show. Thanks, Ryan. It's always good to have a chat with you. Thank you. Let's dive right into some audio from your new podcast, The Confessional. The first episode features Megan Phelps Roper, former member of Westboro Baptist Church, led by her late grandfather, Fred Phelps, who got his family to protest funerals, the funerals of soldiers, of kids killed in school shootings. We were protesting the sinfulness of the nation and saying that this tragedy has befallen you because you were sinning against God, and this is his recompense. And if you want this to stop, if you want this to change, then you need to repent and change your ways. And that's how you avoid curses from God. 
and it was your sort of duty to let people know this. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. It was not, it was not optional. And so we started carrying signs that said, pray for more dead soldiers and pray for more dead kids, which seems insane to say. Mm. But when you are surrounded by this group of people, and again, they're people that you that you love and respect and care deeply about, and you're standing shoulder to shoulder against this world of, of sin, and it allows you to say and do things that you never would in any other context. So tell me, tell me about the moment or the action that kind of weighs on you the most on having more of an understanding of how it might have felt to the other people. There are a lot of those, you know, mostly the things that I think about are the funerals. From my view now, we were especially cruel standing outside of those funerals. You know, sometimes there would be people out there counter-protesting, holding American flags or signs or parking their cars, doing anything they could to put a barrier between us and the families. And we would literally be dancing around them, you know, doing whatever we could to make sure the signs were visible. But we were laughing and chanting, and sometimes we were right outside the churches and the families were walking by. You know, those are the moments that I thought about a lot and are, you know, it's incredibly painful because, again, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to undo what we did. Mm. Nadia, you know that she was handed a protest sign at the age of five. Um, Why did you want to include Megan Phelps Roper in the first season of The Confessional? Well, several reasons, because one of the things I'm trying to accomplish in this podcast is to say, hey, if we know a lot of a person's story, if we know much more of their story than can fit in a tweet, then what they've done starts to make more sense. It doesn't make it okay, but it, it, it allows you to have a little bit of compassion for somebody as a human being and not a caricature to despise. And so the reason I included her for the first episode is so many of us have I mean, if there's some somebody who everyone feels comfortable hating and thinking is horrible, it's the people of Westboro Baptist Church. And she wrote a gorgeous memoir I read called Unfollow. And and she spoke with such affection about her family and her and her upbringing that it problematized my instinct to paint them with one broad brushstroke. And I feel better when I'm in a place of compassion as instead of a place of judgment with folks. But also, to me, it's very important to be able to separate the actual harm people's actions have done and the person themselves. I just think everybody, like Brian Stevenson says, everybody is more than just the worst thing they've ever done. Hmm. You mentioned her book, Unfollow, A Memoir of Loving and Leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. My, my curiosity is piqued. I, indeed, a major theme of the confessional is compassion for people's sins and brokenness, you know, versus disgust or shame. But can we get beyond compassion as a virtue and like to the true power of it? Like, h- how do you see compassion as being important beyond the optics of it, you know? Yeah. Well, the the reason the reason I sort of started this endeavor is, is not because I have an abundance of compassion, but because <laughs> I have a, a deficit of compassion. 
And and after a while, it just started feeling horrible to have a deficit of compassion and only have judgment and anger towards people. And and I sort of myself reflected on um, what has it felt like in my own heart and actually in my own body when somebody else has been in a place of compassion towards me. Because w- when somebody has been truly in a place of compassion towards me, it it softens everything. And I'm able to actually understand and hear the truth of the harm I've caused in a way when they're in a place of compassion towards me that I never will if they're calling me out, if they're accusing me, if they're in judgment of me, because then I just get defensive or um, I start, you know, coming up with excuses or I get angry. And none of that moves the needle in terms of me accessing the truth of myself and my actions. Mm. And so I it, it's this idea that actually I think compassion allows for that more than anything else. And part of it came from this experience I had on stage last or maybe a year and a half ago with Lance Armstrong. We were at this like thought leaders gathering and they said, Hey, would you have a conversation on stage with Lance Armstrong? And I was like, yeah, I totally would. And that day everyone was coming up to me knowing it was the, the last event of that evening and going, Hey, go get him. Like, don't, don't let him off easy. Hmm. And I just thought, what, what is that instinct to like want the person who's quote fallen from grace to keep falling and to never change in our estimation? Like, what does that do for us? And so, um, I just thought, what is that instinct in us to sort of keep accusing somebody? And I thought maybe it's the fact that, um, we get to have Lance Armstrong carry all of that particular sin on our behalf. Like in the sense, like I never, ever, ever have to think about when I might've taken an unfair advantage because, we all collectively got to put all of that onto him and that sort of relieves some of our collective anxiety and it creates social cohesion that we can agree who the the actual bad person is. And so when we were on stage, the first thing I said is I said, Hey Lance, I see from my notes that um, you took drugs you weren't supposed to and you lied about it. And then I went, Oh my God, I did that so many times. Literally, I don't know how many times I did the exact same thing. And I made everyone in the audience raise their hands if at any point in their life they took a drug they weren't supposed to and they lied about it. You know, it's like, we just, there's a theological term for it, scapegoating. Scapegoating. It's very convenient. Let's go back just briefly to Megan Phelps Roper. Again, her grandfather had founded Westboro Baptist Church. And and she comes to know that she hurt a lot of people by protesting at you know, one of the most vulnerable times in their lives. Um, right. But indeed, it wasn't shaming of her behavior that allowed her to see the error of her ways. It was compassion, which she actually had witnessed on social media, if you can believe it. Um, here she is again from the Confessional, your podcast. Yeah. So when people were treating me this way, I started to reflect that back at them, too. And so, you know, there would be moments when you know, I, normally we would see something terrible that happened, like if there was an earthquake or a fire or floods or hurricanes, anything bad that happened, celebrity died. Everybody around me physically, my family, the church members, we'd be celebrating and making plans to go and protest the funerals. And, you know, at the same time on on Twitter, you know, I'm seeing people mournful and grieving when these terrible things are happening. 
that was kind of the very beginning of this little bit of disconnect between how I was feeling and how everybody around me was thinking and feeling. And that disconnect just grew over time so that by the time I saw, you know, uh, one of the guys that had become this, you know, friendly, friendly voice on Twitter, this Australian kid. And so he tweeted a, a photo essay from The Atlantic of this famine in Somalia. And the first image is this like little, you know, very small, emaciated, like baby. And I immediately started crying. Mm. And my mom sees me crying from across the room and she comes over and asks me what's wrong. And I just pointed to the screen. I couldn't talk. I was crying so hard. And she asked me to send it to her, the link to that article, so that she could write a Godsmack about it to say, this is a punishment from God because you all are so evil. Wow. And, you know, I was at this point, though, I was kind of actively looking for like an explanation, like, why do I feel this way? And so I'm looking for compassion in the Bible. I'm actively looking for mercy in the Bible. And I did find it. I felt like it was missing in Westboro's message. And I was seeing it in places like Twitter. That's an excerpt from The Confessional. It's the new podcast from Denver Evangelical Lutheran minister and author Nadia Boltz-Weber. Nadia, you call Megan Phelps Roper, who grew up again in Westboro Baptist Church, you call her a friend. And the two of you were at a conference together when she experiences perhaps the greatest act of compassion of her life. Um, You you tell this story in the podcast. Uh, Would you reveal it here? Yeah, it was it was the same conference just a couple of years later that I met uh, Lance at. It's called the Nantucket Project, and they really do facilitate these kinds of conversations. So um, she and I spent we met each other because I led a conversation with her on stage there, and then we spent the whole weekend kind of hanging out. And I developed just a strong affection for her. And so um, she has a little baby at this point. She's not even a year old. She's holding her baby, and she's hearing another speaker on stage talk about the fact that they're child died uh, in Newtown. And um, at the school shooting, uh, what, a six-year-old, seven-year-old. And here Megan is with her own baby laying on her chest. And she just starts crying, thinking, what if something happened to my baby? And this woman lost her child in a school shooting. And, and it was, it was uh, right, right after Megan had left the church. But Westboro had threatened to protest those babies' funerals. And it caused so much pain and outrage. And Megan was so just distraught about her family's actions and this woman's heartbreak. And she has her her own baby on her chest. And she comes up to me. She goes, do you think that this woman would be willing to talk to me? I don't want to, I don't know how to make amends for what me and my family have done. And I don't want to re-traumatize people. But would you see if she would talk to me? And I went up to her and she was so open-hearted and she said, of course, yes. And I brought Megan over and these two women are standing there, former member of Westboro Baptist Church and a woman who had a, a child die in Newtown who's, um, who was very hurt by Megan's family's actions. And they stood there weeping and embracing and sharing. And um, I stepped away. It wasn't mine to hear what was exactly said, but um, it was so beautiful and transformative maybe for both of them in a way that just trying to accuse Megan or to just confront her once again about what she'd done wouldn't have created that particular moment of healing. And it was beautiful. 
The theme, Nadia, of compassion continues in another episode of your new podcast, which features, I think, a fellow Lutheran pastor, Lenny Duncan. Duncan wrote a book called Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in America. That's a reference to yours and his denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, here's how you introduce his episode. Today, I talked to someone who ran away at 13, got arrested, hurt everyone they loved, and yet whose story unfolded in beautiful and surprising ways. What strikes me about this episode is how much you and Lenny Duncan have in common. You both fell in love with people when you were younger and were totally ill-equipped for the relationship, but many years later reconnected with those partners. Uh, You both turned to drugs and alcohol. You both became ministers. Uh, I'm curious what you learned from talking to him. Like, were, were there epiphanies about your own life from that episode? Um, also, Lenny has sleeve tattoos, so there's... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know so much that... It, I think just the fact that we never know how our story is going to unfold. We just tell each other, we tell ourselves a certain story about who a person is, who we are, what the situation we're in means. And like I myself had realized that when I was in uh, a relationship in my early 20s with somebody, when they left me, how it felt like they took my purpose, my identity, my lovability, my desirability with them. And that's the story I told. But it wasn't but that story wasn't true. We so often put a period where really there's a comma in our lives. And I had no idea that, you know, 26 years later, we would reunite and be back together. And Lenny didn't know that part of his own story as well. So I, I think that idea of like, we can't, we can't feel like we've written, we're writing a finished script when we look at our lives. We don't know what's going to unfold. And this has been one of my favorite things about these conversations is sometimes these moments in our lives that haunt us, the thing that we said that hurt somebody we loved or the thing we did that was so awful, the thing we have so much shame about. Mm. In some ways, that's our origin story for the kind of like superhero we become later. Like, I mean, it, 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 I don't think we should have shame about admitting the truth of those things because all of it is just this incredible compost for the for what grows later. Compost. I, I just want to reiterate that line because it really did stand out to me from the podcast. We assume there is a period where really quite often there actually is a comma. So as a kid, Lenny Duncan ran away from an abusive home. He was in the sex trade for a while to make money. Um, he later falls in love, gets the woman pregnant, flees to Boulder, and doesn't see his kid for 13 years. And and one scene from this episode really stood out to me. It's where he learns the sex of his baby. Um, he's in ja- yeah. he's in jail at the time, arrested for selling LSD. He was trying to raise money to take care of his new family. Um, and so he's behind bars, and his mom writes him a letter. Let's listen. She drew, like, all these stars and ribbons and written, like, she, like, definitely genders it. It's a girl, you know, bright pink, you know, but she's trying to share joy that she has a grandchild. Mm. And she's writing to her son, who's in jail, about 
the kid that the mother says he's not allowed to see. Yeah. Right? So, like, how do you find joy in those moments? So what I remember is how the, the handwriting was, like, in this perfect cursive. Mm-hmm. And how when I opened the letter, there were sparkles on it. And the way it glinted off the low light, they always keep you in in jail. The lights are never always out. And looking at the, the really flourish, it's a girl. It takes up half the page. And her name is Jenna. Right? Because I didn't get to name my daughter. Oh, man. Right? And like the promises that you make to God in those moments. So, okay, you're in that moment and like you're looking at this cheeriest card. Yeah. In the name you didn't get to choose and all the sparkles off the low light in the jail. Yeah. And what, what were you thinking? I was thinking that I had completely become everything I promised I wouldn't be when I left home at 13. That all the things that I left home to avoid, all the patterns I was trying to break, I had become those in a very real way. And it didn't matter that I wasn't physically abusive or emotionally abusive. I was still abusive. I still wasn't showing up. I was still, you know, I I believe... Hurting people you love. Hurting people I love. You know, and that's a form of abuse. Um, I think not being present for people who really need us is a form of spiritual and emotional abuse. An excerpt of the new podcast, The Confessional, with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Is there stuff you still haven't confessed to in all of your years doing religious work? You know, um, yeah, I don't think so. I actually, at one point, when people kept inviting me to speak at clergy conferences or preaching conferences, like when that first started, I just kept saying, you know, it's. Um, I'm sure it's going to die down. Someone will write an expose and it'll be over. And my friends looked at me and they're like, you wrote an expose. Like, what else are people going to do? <laughs> like, my memoirs, it's pretty much out there. But but even the stuff that I kept for myself, I, had, I don't think there's one thing that I've said or done that I feel bad about that I have not talked to another human being about. Hmm. I mean, either published it in a book, said it in a podcast, or at least talked to another human being about. Yeah, for sure. I just, I I believe in grace so much. I mean, that I don't think we should have shame in admitting why we need it. Like, I think there is this, I describe grace as this, it's like this freight train that delivers into my life all the beautiful and unearnable things like grace and mercy and endless second chances and a perfect peach in summer and love. Like, you can't make yourself good enough to earn these things. It's grace. And I believe in it so much that I don't think we should have shame about admitting the moments when we needed it the most. Okay, I'd like to play another excerpt from the episode with Lenny Duncan. He makes amends to the woman and child he abandoned more than a decade prior, and they show him grace and compassion. And he and this woman, Bree, fall back in love, a healthier love. He is desperate to be a good father to Jenna. Let's listen. We got married on April Fool's Day. And how old's Jenna at that point? Jenna's 16. Was she at the wedding? Yeah. What did she do? She uh, stood with her mom. Wow. That is just an unbelievable story. That is just, it is incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. I was just watching the newsroom, that Aaron Sorkin HBO series. Yeah. 
I love that show. One of the characters said, asked somebody else, do you believe in God? And he said, yeah. She goes, I do too. And she goes, I think that we know we've we've violated a law of God when we can't put it back together. Yeah. Like when you cannot, there is no possible way to fix it. Yeah. And so whenever I see examples of you would think you can't put it back together and yet there is restoration and it's not to the original pure state. All right. Give us a highlight, a preview of a forthcoming episode of The Confessional. Nadia. Oh, gosh. I um, I talked to Amy Brenneman in a couple weeks, the actress from uh, Judging Amy and The Leftovers and um, about it's interesting because the, the episode we have that's a movie star, the thing she confesses to is the thing I think that is the most relatable um, out of all of the episodes. So um, I'm excited about that. And uh, and the memoirist, uh, Melissa Phoebos, is coming up. She wrote Whip Smart, which is about being a dominatrix in New York while high on heroin and uh, honor student at the new school. <laughs> so I, I just I have some just wonderful wonderful folks who are who are part of this yeah in just the last few moments is COVID-19 testing your faith in any way we have less than a minute I'm just curious <laughs> that's a big question yeah I know <laughs> and now we have less than a minute okay Ryan okay okay um yeah I think um no I I think it's made me have a deeper understanding about what faith means and that that everything being perfect and clicking along and endless possibilities in the future, that's not the sign that God is faithful. And so if we think that's the sign God is faithful, we'll be disappointed. But if we're disappointed, we get to kind of rebuild something that actually is truer. So um, I think just sort of not attaching my happiness on future events or the way the future has to look and sort of diving into this moment more. Nadia Bowles-Weber of Denver hosts The Confessional, available wherever you get your podcasts. She's also good at summing things up on live radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.